This talk was given by Prabhu Gikhan Vasan at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gikhan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. I just want to first start by welcoming everyone who's here at home. Um, I'm glad the, uh, the live stream kicked in. I also want to just um, offer gratitude for everyone who has kept all of this going here and in um, the lives of everyone at home um, in a year like uh, no other year that, that I can remember anyway. Um, just as a, a way of offering, I just wanted to say, start with a very quick um, quick story. When I was in high school back in the, in the mid-80s, um, I was hanging out with my buddies, and we started talking about the millennium, you know, the year 2000, what we were going to do on New Year's Eve on the eve of the millennium. And we all went around, and when it came to my turn, I thought about it and I said, I want to be meditating in a Zen monastery. <laughs> no idea why I said this. I knew nothing at all about Buddhism or Zen and almost nothing about meditation, just whew, like shot in the dark. And of course, my friends didn't take me seriously. You know, they were like, yeah, Zen monastery, whatever. All right, move on. But you know, 15 years, 16 years later, on the eve of the millennium, I was here doing my first <laughs> New Year's Eve program. And I remember, you know, thinking, I remember feeling so much gratitude that I had found this place. And, um, you know, I, so I was able to keep my, my resolution. That's pretty much how I'm feeling now. Just immense gratitude that all of this is still here. So that we can all keep our resolution. This is a passage from the Baya Bharava Sutra from the Pali Canon. I considered thus, if I dwell in such frightening places as woods and forests, I might encounter fear and dread. And later, I dwelt in such frightening places as woods and forests. And while I dwelt there, a wild animal would approach, or a peacock would break a twig, or the wind would rustle the leaves, and I'd think, is fear and dread coming? Then it occurred to me, why do I just keep waiting for fear and dread to come? What if I, in whatever state, what if I, in whatever state I'm in, when fear and dread come, were to subdue that fear and dread in that very state? And then by way of illustration, the Buddha says that, you know, if fear and dread came to him while he was sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, he would maintain that position until he had subdued it. This passage, I, I chose it because it, it speaks to me in, in a couple of different ways, very particularly at this time. Right? We are, it's the beginning of Rahatsu, our longest session. And I will admit, without shame, that Rahatsu has always intimidated me a little bit, even though I've done a bunch of them. We're also deep in winter, and winter intimidates me. It's dark, and it's cold, and my um, 
somewhat tendency to slide into depression, um, it's something I need to watch around this time of year. Right? So this is not my, this is a season that um, I sort of have a low-lying dread about most years. And especially this winter, this winter of COVID, this winter where even the things I can sometimes do to help myself, like hug people, it was wonderful hugging every person I hugged here, by the way. It was, uh, the f- you're the only people I've hugged in the last seven months that aren't my wife, and it was just wonderful. Um, like hugging people, like being with people are fraught around this time, right? It's harder to do that. So I want to look at this teaching, as well as a couple of other little clips, to really see how to work with all this, how to work with, with suffering, within the very states and circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, I think in order to really enter this path of practice, maybe any path of spiritual practice, I think two things have to happen. Well, actually, okay, three things have to happen. First, we have to suffer, but that's kind of a a given. That's the Buddha basically said that. His first teaching, life, at least the way most of us live it, is suffering. So we don't that's sort of the that's sort of given to us, so to speak. But I think two additional things need to happen. First, we need to recognize that we're suffering. Right? We have to be able to, or we have to pop our head out of the water and realize that that we're drowning. And second, we need to question the need for that or the inevitability of that. Does it really have to be this way? Right. Basically, we need to ask some version of what the Buddha asked, why do I just keep waiting for fear and dread to come? Another translation has it, why, do, why am I always expecting fear and dread? We have to ask some version of that. Um, I, I recently got a letter from uh, one of the inmates from our prison program. He's very new to this. I think it was his very first letter um, or second letter. And he told me a little bit about his life um, and, he, and about how he came to practice. And he said that you know, his early life was characterized by a lot of abuse at the hands of people who he should have been able to trust. And he said this led to two things. First, and he said this very directly, this led me to prison. He didn't give any more details, but he was pretty unequivocal about that. Um, and, you know, even though he didn't give details, I can imagine what might have happened. There's that um, really kind of pithy phrase you, you hear in, in, every once in a while, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Right? Um, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful phrase. It's, um, you know, the, the, the way hurt moves from an adjective, right, a modifier, to a verb. Right? Um, being hurt being modified by hurt, we then move on to hurting, right? to taking that and making it into an action, into a verb. So that was the first thing that happened because of this. The second thing, and this he actually went into more detail about, it led him to question, and he said this. He began to question the belief systems of the people who were hurting him, the real hypocrisy between what people were espousing and what they were, how they were actually behaving. Um, the belief systems that he was taught in school, in religion, etc. 
And because of that, he said that when he went to prison and he had a chance encounter with the Dharma, he was ready. And his letter showed that. It showed, he really just clearly just said how he was just ready for this. You know, he had passed through, I imagine, a, a number of years asking, you know, recognizing his suffering, questioning why it has to be this way, but not seeing another way. So when he was offered that, pow! So that's what we need. I think that's in some ways what, what most of us maybe ask, is why do I just keep waiting for this? Why does it have to be this way? You know, thinking back about when I first entered Buddhist practice, I'm struck. And, and having um, been in guardian council a few times, I, I continue to be struck when we're meeting with people about how just straightforward and simple people's reasons are for entering practice. Right? Me personally, I wanted to feel better. Just simple. Um, I'd been feeling a lot of bad feelings, and I, I wanted to feel better feelings than I was feeling. And practice addresses this. Right? Um, through practice, we learn the, the healing power of stillness and silence. This gentleman um, who wrote, and I'm corresponding with, ca- called his first experience of Zazen, he just said, it was just rest for my mind. He just talked about that, right? That it was just the, you know, he said, I'm, I'm always thinking. I'm always just kind of thinking about stuff, thinking about stuff, thinking about trying to figure stuff out, trying to, f- and it was just rest. He didn't have to do that anymore. And that's important, and it's empowering. You know, we learn a lot by doing that. I remember when I, when I finished social work school and I had my first job, somehow it got out that I was practicing Zen, even though I was just barely practicing. I was just starting out, but it just got started. So they wanted to do a meditation group. You know, I was like the, the Buddhist on the ward, so I was asked to run one. And... Um, it was a meditation group for, for people who, who, who had um, serious mental illness, um, serious depression, bipolar disorder, etc. Um, and, you know, I was, when I went into it, I, I, um, Miyotai-sensei was, um, um, was my teacher at the time at the temple in Brooklyn. And I asked her, how do I, how do I not just mess this up, like, so completely bad, it's going to just be, like, awful? And she said, okay, look, there's just three things, you know. Answer only when asked, answer what's been asked, and answer from your direct experience. And if you do that, you pretty much won't, you'll avoid a lot of the major mistakes that people make when they're trying to do something like this. And I did that. And, you know, the, I remember, you know, thinking, well, this is just a, a, you know, it was sort of, I was tag teaming with another therapist who did a lot of visualizations, and I sort of did a little bit of that and a little bit of what might be more Zazen. I was thinking, you know, is this really going to help? And it helped. You know, it really helped. Um, I, I began to see that, you know, when, when you're in the real hell realm of your emotions, any other realm is an improvement, right? If you can get from the hell realm to, like, the hungry ghost realm or, like, like the animal realm, you know, it's... You, you, it's pretty good, right? So those first, um, those first practices that were taught help. And we're encouraged not to stay there, right? If we stay with this, we're invited to come closer than that. 
There's actually a, a kind of a funny story um, that happened to me at work. Um, this is before the pandemic, shortly before, when I was still going into the office. We had like a big meeting, with a bunch of people coming in. And, you know, we were, I was in the kitchen where everyone had put their coats down, and I saw a little tote bag. And this is going to totally, just this is my politics, might not be yours, a little tote bag with um, Trump kind of sticking out of a pile of coats with Trump. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, all right, who is like the mofo in this meeting right now who I have to hate? <laughs> for like the rest of the meeting because they obviously suck in so many different ways. Like I won't even enumerate it, but of course I was enumerating like the whole time. I'm like totally, I'm like scanning the room. I'm like, all right, which person here? All right, who's, who is this? Who is this? Who's like, who's like the shitter in this room? <laughs> and then we, we had a break. So I went back into the kitchen and, you know, people had moved their coats around. So I saw the entire tote bag and it actually said, Trump is history. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I'm just like, this person is so golden. Like, I love, I don't even know, and I love this person already. Like, this person is on my side. Everyone in this meeting is on my side. Like, this is good. Like, the world is good. Everyone is good. It's all nice. Um, In the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha describes people as revolving wheel-like through the six realms of existence and undergoing every sort of suffering and pain. And then he adds, having received a tiny form in the womb, in existence after existence, they grow it to maturity. He was talking about rebirth, but that's exactly what happened to me. I encountered a tiny form, one word, one name, right there, pop, dropped into my consciousness, and immediately I began maturing it. Right? I brought everything I had to it, right? All of my baggage, all of my views, and everything. And I began moving through those wheels. And then, during the break, I saw two more words. So now we got three words, right? And suddenly I began maturing something different, right? The exact opposite. I would like to say that that little incident was in the distant history of my practice, and now I'm so like beyond that, but it was just literally like eight months ago, so it, it was pretty new. But I think, you know, I, maybe we have to see this, see ourselves doing this over and over and over and over and over again, right? We, we have to see it until we, we, we get to see that the, the miserable self or the happy self are both caught on the wheel. Right? That's not to say that the feelings are don't count. Right? The Buddha actually said there are certain states of mind that it's important to cultivate, and there are certain states of mind that it's important to try to diminish or to try to let go of. Right? So that the states of mind count. But what I think, at least what, what I see over and over again, is how unreliable that whole wheel is. Right? How it leaves me at the mercy of my circumstances. This is a small circumstance, right? Um, I was not going to blow up the entire staff meeting and get fired, and I wasn't going to go and like hug every single person when I thought, you know, they all loved me and I loved them. It was a small thing, but it showed, right? It showed how, how I was caught. And I think we have to do this until we begin to turn our attention to the wheel itself, as opposed to what the wheel is or isn't doing for us. There's a, there's a construction that the Buddha uses, actually in a number of sutras, so I'm assuming it was pretty important for him. Uh, and this is just from the sutra called the Gadula Sutra. He says, people assume form to be the self, or the self as possessing form, 
or form as in the self, or the self as in form. And they keep circling around that very form. They are not set loose from that form. They are not set loose from birth, aging, and death, from distress and despair. They are not set loose from suffering. And having kind of taken us through that for form, he takes us through that for the remaining skandhas, right? Feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. Each one cranking it through that logic. We assume something about it. We circle around it. Therefore, we suffer. And the interesting, and yet, so as most of us, I think, know, the skandhas, um, we chant them every day. The skandhas, very briefly, are the entire apparatus by which we construct our reality. It's the entire apparatus by which we have experience, by which we understand experience, by which we give meaning to experience as we move through the world. And the funny thing is that the Buddha doesn't identify any of that with suffering. Suffering happens when we do something with all of that, right? When we put a self in relation to them, when we regard our experience as being us or containing us or contained within us. Over the last um, number of months, I've been trying to intentionally work with this. Um, I've been trying to intentionally look at moments, and there have been plenty of them, just given the state of everything, of upheaval, like my own upheaval. Um, Strong emotions. And I've been trying to really, I've been trying to sort of really see what am I, at those moments, what am I creating? What am I doing in relationship to those feelings, to that upheaval? And, you know, sometimes it's on the cushion. Sometimes if I can catch myself, it's off the cushion. And what I see is that, you know, sometimes I really feel like I am the owner. Oftentimes that's when it's a good feeling, right? Someone gives me a really good compliment at work. I get praised when I'm doing a training, etc. You know, suddenly I, I, wanna, I, I, I own that. I want to own it, right? And other times I'm the victim right, of all of that, right? Some, and... Um, Certainly, uh, as the election was kind of just going on its roller coaster, you know, um, you know, is my candidate going to win? Is he going to lose? Is he going to win? Well, he's going to win, but it's going to be stolen. You know, all of that. Um, there are moments when I really felt that, you know, a lot of anxiety come up for me, a lot of anger, and I really felt that I there's a I am the victim. Right? There's something in there that's being victimized by all of that. Right? And my responses depend on, on, on which, which way I go. Right? If I'm the owner of it, if it's something good, I want to amplify it. Right? It's not good enough for me just to get a compliment from my boss. I've got to now build it up in my head until, you know, I'm, it's the compliment is much bigger than it ever was. I've got a fantasy that's far better than, um, than the reality because in my fantasy, I'm a far better employee than I am in reality. So, you know, now it's, it's now completely built up. And if it's, if it's something bad, I've begun to really see how I feel like I am being assaulted by those feelings, and I have to do something with that. I have to defend myself against those very feelings. I have to expel those feelings onto other people, onto whole groups of people, onto whole swaths of our nation. Um, I have to somehow get rid of it, expel it, project it. I think this is what practice invites us to subdue, is that whole mechanism, and to do it in whatever state we're in. You know, as we 
as we look closer, as, as I've looked closer, um, I mean, we, we get to see, and it can be very visceral, you know, when you're in the grips of anger or anxiety, to really look into there, it's very visceral. Like, for me, my whole body is like, you know, this is the self right here. Don't tell me there is no self. I'm feeling a fucking self right here, and it sucks, right? I can point exactly where I'm feeling it. It's like a friggin' like, it's like, it's, it's like a stone wall, like running from my gut up into my throat. Yes, that is the self. Don't tell me it doesn't exist. And we grow to see how every structure that we put there dissolves, if given time. And if, you, if we don't simply keep shoring it up, no matter how real it seems, no matter how visceral it seems, no matter how important it is, because those things are important, it dissolves. And I think it's taken me quite some time to grow to trust that. To grow to trust that, that dissolving. You know, to trust that when fear arises, a frightened person arises. And then when fear or anger ceases, the frightened or angry person ceases. And then to trust the spaciousness that's left. When, when I can trust myself not to simply build something else up again. There's a, there's a line in the Dhammapada, which I think it's, I realize that this is all occurring in India where winter, you know, was probably like 85 degrees or something. But to me, this is a winter line. So I'm going to actually say, cause it evokes winter. And I think it's, it's, it's a lovely line. Um, this is the Buddha says. Those who sit alone, sleep alone, and walk alone, who are strenuous and subdue themselves, will find delight in the solitude of the forest. You know, to me, um, seeing how the Buddha, you know, I mean, moved from, moved to being able to find delight in the very forest that at a certain point in his practice he feared and dreaded, right? Is just wonderful. It's one of these like little coincidences that said me, oh wow, he practiced and practice helped him. Right? You know, I think practice really meets us where we're ready to be met and helps us at that place. Um, from the time we enter, you know, this gentleman that I'm corresponding with, you know, his, I was delighted in his enthusiasm having discovered the Dharma and he's meeting where he's at, you know, and, and, you know, Parts of it are he's really on the right track. Parts of it he's not, and I try to give him some guidance around it. But it's helping him where he's at, and I think it. I think it does that. But all the t- all the while, I think it's it helps by revealing who we are when we are truly alone. Right. That is when we're not carrying around a person all the time, and it does that from the moment we let go of that first thought and see what's there. It might just be a split second, but what's there when that thought isn't there? And then we're invited to trust it, to trust that more and more and more. Not just on the cushion, but off the cushion, and even when it's really, really, really difficult. And the reason I think it's, the reason I, th- I think the Buddha formulated it in this way is, is to break that link. Hurt people hurt people. Right? I think that's the link that practice seeks to undo. 
Right. That is how, how I see this practice and our vows and our, our, our precepts kind of coming together, right? So that hurt people won't continue to hurt people. So that frightened people won't go on to frighten people. Right. And practice helps us do that in the most fundamental way by undoing that linking, by undoing the, or allowing us to forget the person who's constantly linking, constantly linking, 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 linking. So Rahatsu continues. One continuous thread continues. Winter continues. COVID, for now, not forever, but for now, continues. So let's go deep into whatever forest of events and emotions we happen to be in, wherever we are in the Zendo, out there, in your homes. Let's go so deep that we lose ourselves in that very forest. Thank you, and happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.